For full accident management support, including motor replacement, repairs and personal injury compensation claims, just search G4 Claims today. Uh, hi and welcome to this week's episode of the DW Podcast. I am joined by a Scottish great award-winning author, uh, Christopher Brookmeyer. Thanks very much for, for joining us. Hiya. How are you getting on? Same as everybody, I think. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm fortunate in that I'm somebody that's, I'm not having to furlough, I'm not having to suspend what I'm doing. You know, I've, I've spent uh, the last six months working on another book with my wife and it's, we're in this very fortunate position of being able to do our job without much interruption. The downside is, is all the work part of the job we're able to do, but none of the fun stuff, you know, no book festivals, no events, no meeting up with your friends and fellow authors. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's been intense, actually, but not, we're, you know, we're never losing sight of how fortunate we are to be able to do our job uninterrupted. I think it's it's interesting you say that, because obviously, you know, that your, your job you can you can do from home, uh, writing it, and maybe even during this lockdown period, you might find more people reading books, but... I suppose some of the, the let off the steam for you guys is going out to these book festivals and promoting your book and, you know, talking to people and, as you said, meeting other authors as well. Yeah, I mean, when you go to um, book festivals, it's not just, I mean, there's a the social element of it is really important, but you find that um, because you're talking about books or you're talking about the business of books and you're talking about each other's work, often if you spend a lot of time at book festivals, you come away feeling quite energised, you know, you sort of want to up your game and you're reminded of the value of what you're doing by talking to readers, but also talking to your friends who are also writers. So having that absented um, is is, is a big loss. Um, I mean, I think it was Doug Johnston, who's my fellow crime writer and fellow member of the for loving crime writers, he was saying about he, it's only recently he's realised how much of his social life was constructed around book festivals. <laughs> so this, you know, you you didn't always go out your way to organise things because you would see so many of your your friends at the next festival or you know um, the next uh, bookshop event or something. And and with all that gone, it's been there's an element of all work and no play. I must say. <laughs> you mentioned Doug there, and I, I had uh, Craig Robertson on a couple of weeks ago in the podcast, and it seems that. You know, with you Scottish crime writers, there's a real good community spirit there. You're all keen to look out for each other, meet each other at festivals and, and share each other's work as well. You know, it seems like it's these are already in it together. It's brilliant to see from the outside looking in. I mean, it's always been the case. I think it's true of, of crime writers in general. You know, we're, we're um, fairly easy going. Um, and I know that people who've written in other genres, or, or not so much genres, but maybe people who are writers with a capital W and... Um, then they've they've gone da- dipped their foot in crime writing, and a lot of them have remarked that people in crime fiction are a lot more mutually supportive. You know, there's less of that the Gore Vidal quote about you know every time a friend has a success, a little part of me dies. You know, there's, there's um, we are I think I think because first and foremost we're all fans of the genre, and so you're if somebody writes something brilliant, you're not thinking bastard. You know, you're 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 really pleased to read it because you've got something new to to take in. Um, and certainly Mark Bellingham, another fellow crime writer and another member of the band, he, he used to work in stand-up and he said, you know, that stand-up comedians can be very kind of backstabby, you know, they, they desperately wanted each other to fail, you know, you never want to go on after somebody who's just had a great set. 
And I think in, in crime fiction, we we generally are. Um, I think it helps that we don't take ourselves as seriously as perhaps some other writers. So there's a wee bit less um, rampant egotism, uh, or maybe we're just better at hiding our insecurities. But we 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 like each other's company. You know, I think the the obviously within crime fiction is a wide field, but you do find. Um, I mean, I've come to realise at this stage of my life, so, so many of my friends are other crime writers. And it's partly because you end up, you know, you're, it's not just that there's, there's, I mean, there's a few specific crime fiction festivals, but in book festivals in general, you'll probably get put on a panel with other crime writers and they become the people that you tend to know. It's a uh, it's testament to, you mentioned the band there, you know, the, the fun-loving crime writers, and that in itself is a, it's an amazing story. It's like, how did it come about? You know, it's a, a group of crime writers, predominantly Scottish, I believe, that have went and started making music and played Glastonbury. It's, it's unreal. It was, it's, it's a weird thing. I think it'd be hard to trace the roots of it all the way back, but there's an argument to be made that, in a way, it began at Bloody Scotland, at the Crime at the Coup, which was the event we have on the Saturday night, where everybody gets up and does a turn in this tiny stage that is like this, honestly, like the size of... The, the bottom of your shower, you know, the, the stage that you can barely fit two yeah, people on it. But um, everybody does a, a wee turn, and I think, like, Doug was, he was playing guitar for Val McDermott one night, and then you know, everyone did a, a song or a poem or, or a reading. And about a fortnight after um, Bloody Scotland one year, three of the, the members of the band were at BoucherCon, which is the World Mystery Convention that was in New Orleans. And there was a, a kind of, sort of, not an open mic night, but there was a, a, a kind of night out organised in the House of Blues in New Orleans. And there was a, a sort of supposed house band there that the idea was to get lots of crime writers up to do a bit. Um, and I think Mark and Stuart Neville and Doug Johnson had been, maybe they'd volunteered or, they'd, or somebody suggested they do something. Um, but when they got there, they said it was it was kind of awful. You know, the the, the house band there they were, were a shambles, and that the whole thing was turned into a bit of a mess. And they were on the verge of sneaking out, and um, they got. Uh, I think that as they were sneaking out, the, the woman that was kind of hosting it was shouting, "Where are the Brits? You know, get the Brits!" Or <laughs> and and so they three of them uh, they were like looking up chords on their phones and stuff to find out that they caused the certain songs. And they shambled their way through. Um, Folsom Prison Blues, Werewolves of London, and for some reason that Doug can still not quite articulate 500 miles. So, <laughs> and, it, and it went on YouTube because it went down very well. It ended up on YouTube, and uh, Roland Gulliver of the Edinburgh Book Festival had seen it and said to Mark and Doug, um, This would be great to do it the, uh, the Unbound Strand, which is the sort of late night strand at the Book Festival. Um, can you do a two hour slot in August? At this point, three members and three friends. So um, they had to put a band together. And um, so Mark got <laughs> Luca, uh, Mark asked Luca Bestie, you played uh, bass. And Luca didn't play bass, but he did play guitar. But he just, thought, he just said, I. <laughs> so he ended up bass player. Um, the recruited in Val to sing. And Doug said to me, would you come? And like maybe do one song. And I think at this point they were thinking we'd get a whole load of writers to sing one song. And I, I coincidentally was doing an event with Mark um, down in Liverpool. So they organised a rehearsal. The whole band went to a rehearsal space in Liverpool. Excellent. And I was meant to be rehearsing one song, really. Um, 
But I thought, that song was well, it? I put a bit of effort into this and, and I came up with some harmonies for other songs, figuring, because by this point it had become clear that it was, it was only going to be the, the six of us. There wasn't going to be a whole load of other writers doing a, a contribution. So I, I worked out a few harmonies for backing vocals, made myself a wee bit more useful. And then we did this first show. Uh, I was only there for the second half because I was actually doing my talk at the Edinburgh Book Festival while they were doing the first half. Um, in the second half, it was it was just great fun. And we, it kind of grew from there. And I decided, I really got to at the age of, I think it was 48 at the time, finally start learning to play the guitar. <laughs> uh, so I started learning the guitar and, and um, just to add a, another element to the, the sound. And um, yeah, they, they've not kicked me out yet. And so we've, did you we, have we, any musical background before that, Christopher? Did you did you play no, guitar? Just liked music. Uh, um, and it was it provided for me the impetus to finally really practice and, and start learning an instrument. Um, but it, what mainly it helps is that you when you get three really good musicians in the spine of the band, it calls up a lot of sins, you know. Um <laughs> Doug's a phenomenal drummer, Lookout's a great bass player, and Stuart Neville's just an amazing guitarist. So you know, Stuart's guitar's louder than everything else, so uh, if you hit the wrong chord, nobody notices. <laughs> but no, it just became one of these things that we could not have anticipated. It started off, uh, we did a couple of book festivals, and then in January of 2018, we did uh, a gig in a, a wee club in London, uh, and well, like half, it felt like half the book industry turned up to that. That's amazing. And, in 2018, we ended up doing 13 shows because so many book festivals started asking us to play. And it just kind of built and built until we got asked to play Glastonbury and then Cornbury Music Festival the week after as well. So yes, it's been, it's, that's one of the things we're all missing so much. We were, we were meant to be playing the Queen's Hall in April and that got cancelled. We, we do vow to be back. You must be questioning yourself if you're a touring musician or if you're a, an author nowadays. Uh, well, it's the 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 great thing about, as we were saying earlier, about book festivals being this great social occasion was it was a great time to let off steam anyway. But, you know, be able to play, go to book festivals, talk about books, and then at the end of the night, play some music was just, it was the, the ultimate perk of, of my writing career. You get, do you get nervous before the shows, or are you quite laid back and relaxed about it? Oh yeah, yeah. We're, we're I mean, when I when I was first going on a stage to play a guitar, thinking, <laughs> you think I just I just unplug this subtly so nobody hears me playing it wrongly. But um, you kind of feed off the the adrenaline, and it's a weird thing. I've heard everybody say this. There's when you're on stage, you suddenly you can hit notes that you couldn't hit when you were rehearsing. Um, you know, your voice can just somehow bring a wee bit more performance out, I think, because of the adrenaline. Um, sometimes you're in the middle of a, a bar on the guitar and I think, I honestly can't remember what the next chord is, but the moment it, it, it's necessary, it comes back into your head. And it's a weird thing. Um, you, you do feed off the audience as well, but you, you definitely get a, a huge adrenaline hit. Um, although at Glastonbury, we were all very nervous. I think except Luca. Luca was just thinking, this is the best moment of my life and I'm going to enjoy every second of it. But we all went on stage at Glastonbury, we were all very nervous. And I think what that manifested itself in the first number, uh, Val started singing an octave higher than she normally does. Because no she was nervous. And this threw all of us because we all started thinking, are we in the wrong key here? Because it just didn't quite add up. And we're looking back and forth at each other. And then we realised it's just that Val, she's not in the wrong key, she's just singing an octave higher for some mm. reason. Um, and she's connected it for the, the sort of the second 
might not even have been the whole of the first verse, might just been a couple of bars, but at that time on stage, it felt like ages. <laughs> you're panicking. Do, do you feel that a lot? Of the Cornbury, we were absolutely fine. We were, you know, there was a it was weird, there was less expectation. There was also there was hardly any at Cornbury, it wasn't, um, it's was quite a small festival. There's there was only about 70 or 80 people in front of the stage when we started. Right. But there was several thousand by the end because people would, were coming over this hill and they'd, to see what's going on. And of course, at a festival, uh, a lot of the music isn't familiar to people, but we were playing covers. So people would hear, but they were listening to it and then they would just stay. So by the end, yeah, we got these great um, selfies and photos of like the, uh, this huge crowd that had ended up staying, which we felt was, that was quite a, uh, an affirmation. Do you feel that people come along because they, they appreciate your writing and they think, I wonder what these guys are like actually on stage, or is it just a mix of, of everything, really? I think, especially in the early days, there was a, a degree of morbid curiosity. I think there was people <laughs> thinking, this, this will be a car crash, Let's, this will be entertaining, you know. And yeah. um, we benefited, I think, from people's low expectations because the folks that have rocked up thinking it was some sort of shambling affair and uh, they would they would be pleasantly surprised that we sounded all right, you know. And, <laughs> Um, but there is a novelty element, you know, that it's, I think people are definitely, we are, the reason we play cover songs, the theme is all crime fiction, but the reason we play cover songs is because we are really being indulged by the audience, you know, they're indulging us um, as a, a, a bunch of aging crime writers having a rock and roll fantasy, you know, so we want to play stuff that they'll like. Of course. Um, and, so it, it's we feel very very fortunate to be doing it. I think that's that's the thing we've never lost sight of. It's, it's like this massive perk that we can't quite believe. What's your favorite favorite track to play? Um, it's Joe. You know, it's one of those you don't. It's sometimes it's different. You know, there's one night you say, "Oh, that song really really went down well," and, and um, I particularly like doing down the tube station at midnight. So I like the song, yeah. um, and it gets the audience going. That's brilliant. It's it's just amazing, you know that. Where these places from being a writer take you as well. You must have some amazing experiences in your life away from writing. You know, for example, playing in the band that you never thought would come to you. I, I think that is a, a one of the reasons that I've, I've felt very privileged in the the sort of fringe benefits of, of writing. For one thing, I always quite like talking in front of an audience um, and talking at book festivals. You know, getting a, a sense of response from the audience, but it it, it has led to some unusual things, you know, we get asked on maybe doing TV, radio, etc. But ended up doing some stand-up because of it. I'd done a few sort of jokes with uh, as part of introducing books and in uh, about 2005 it was, Mark Billingham was asked to put together a, a charity night at the Comedy Store and it was for the Book Trade Benevolent Trust. So it was meant to be, the way it was sold to me was um, it was going to be a book industry audience you know entirely book industry audience and the, the the gimmick was the little brown at the time had all these comedians who had written books the idea was we're going to get all of them to do a turn but we'll get a few writers to try their hand at yeah. comedy um, and I was, so when it was sold to me they said we're going to get Alistair, uh, alexander mccall smith because he's, he's quite he's a very funny speaker um and I, so I signed up, Mark got me roped into it, and I rehearsed a, a stand-up routine. On the night, it turned out there'd been a kind of mix-up, and so yes, there was a lot of people from the book industry, but I'd been advertised and sold to the public anyway. It was a Monday night uh, at the comedy store, 
in the lineup was uh, Rich Hall, Jenny Eclair, um, Jeff Green, uh, Sandy Toxvig. You know, it was like it was all A-listers that you would never get at the comedy store. Never mind all in the one bill. So the place was rammed to the the, the four walls with just comedy public, you know, and, and a few people from the book industry. And I was on first. Oh, I know. And, and there was no other writers turned comedian. There was just me. So, um, and Mark was comparing, because he's compared at the comedy store for like 20 years. And I was in the dressing room beforehand and the the only mic feed, or there's, there's a telly showing you what's on, on the stage. Um, but the only feed is the, the live stage mic. So Mark's out there and I can hear him do his, his warm up and talking to the audience. But there's no laughter. And I'm thinking, he's dying on his arse. You know how that's happening to. But it's because it's a, a dynamic mic, so it's, it's not picking up any of the audience. So I went out there and I was trying to do, I did a few gags that were like book industry gags that I'd written. Um, and there's like, you know, <laughs> polite ripples of laughter, but most folk are like, what? <laughs> um, and then I tried to do something that was a wee bit more political, not realising that at that time political comedy was just dead. Um, <laughs> so I resorted to some just filth and, and <laughs> that kind of got me through um, got some laughs with the filth and then got off the stage and so I've got the it's like I survived the experience of doing a sort of 15 minute set at the comedy store would you do um, it again? no <laughs> <laughs> well do you know I interviewed Alexi Sale um, for a radio show we, we did it live at the Edinburgh Book Festival uh, no sorry the Edinburgh Festival but, um, and so I had to interview him in front of a, a, an audience. And it was a nerve-wracking experience just to keep things ticking over, but he was such a great speaker. But he was talking about the fact that he had, at the time, he was loving being a writer, loving doing book festivals, because he said he could sit there and talk to the audience who would be rolling in the aisles, his, his routines, but it didn't have the pressure um, of, you know, a comedy audience, drunk people, or folk who are there to cause trouble, or, you know, it's just a very different vibe. And I think when you... As a writer, when you go and do bookshop events or festivals and you've got some funny material in the audience are very receptive, they're very polite, you know, and they're not there for expecting a, a riotous night out. So anything amusing that happens is a bonus, you know. Um, so I think I, I get enough of that, you know, the, the upside of that, uh, of, of doing some gags on stage. I get to do that in a fairly safe, controlled environment. But Mark, a few years ago, must be ten years ago that we came up with the idea that uh, we would we should take a lot of our funny stories and our the emails that people send us and all that and, and combine it into a two man show. So we've done that at quite a lot of festivals, and it's we're instead of doing an event where you sit down and you read from your book and then you take questions about your book and you talk about the inspiration. Mark and I just tell stories about the reality of being a writer. We read the abusive emails we get and the one star reviews from Amazon and all that stuff. And that again, it's like it's like a stand-up show with actually a wee bit of audio-visual stuff we've added to it as well. So you get the buzz of doing that, but without throwing yourself to the lions before a you know a, a hungry comedy audience. It's good that you mention that, Crystal, because I, I often wonder. You know, I've spoke to a lot of bands on here, and they say, you know, try not to listen to the critics, try not to read the reviews, what people say about your latest album. Is is it similar in a, when you release a book? You know, are you putting it out there? Because certainly from my experience reading some of your uh, novels it's I feel that you put as much as it's fiction you know you put a lot of your personal experience into it or a lot of your characters are based around people that you know or things that you've experienced do, 
do you put it out there and think, I don't care if people like this because I know that it's good work, or do you think, mm, I'm a bit nervous about what people are going to say about this? I think at this stage, uh, I'm not really concerned. I mean, I'm probably better at disguising the elements of myself that are in there, or I'll take elements of my own perspective and, and sort of repurpose them to um, to tell a story. So I'm not feeling quite as exposed. And I think at this stage, I've got professional judgment enough to think, I know when I'm happy with my, my book, and I'm not even submitting it to my editor until I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah. Um, when I was much younger, I was... I, you know, I, a young and experienced writer, I think you're going to be more susceptible to reading bad reviews. And um, also, I mean, when I was first was first published, I'd written quite ugly one morning, and I'd just been as sort of scabrous and uh, over the top as I wanted, just for more amusement. And there was a weird kind of penny drop moment when I read my first review of realizing, oh fuck, I've actually put this out there. You know, mm-hmm. people that aren't my family are now going to see this, and it's you know, it's it's really filthy, and it's. It's, um, it doesn't hold back in any way at all. And it hadn't even occurred to me, even through the, it had been written about a year and a bit before it was published, most of it's been through all the, I'd written the next novel, um, but it was a, a sort of sudden waking up to realising your stuff's out there now, you know, and it's, it's not yours anymore. It's, it's, it's there for other people to tear apart if they choose to. But um, the worst review I ever got, I think, was that my first review. Uh, and it was, it was a, Hell of a day, in fact. It was the day that um, uh, England beat Scotland 2-0 at Euro 96, the day Gaza scored Gaza that goal. Um, but I'd got this review in the morning and in the afternoon that happened, so it, was, <laughs> it wasn't a great day. But my publishers had the right attitude. It, was like, it wasn't just a bad review, it was a kind of almost outraged review. So they ran an ad the next week with quotes from it, quite proudly. You know, Quotes like they said the book is... Um, thoroughly nasty and deeply unpleasant. So they, they ran with, with ads in the, the Herald, which had published the review. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's, that's the right attitude to take. So I'm, I'm, these days, I'm, it's interesting. I'll, I'll read, I won't read a lot of reviews, but sometimes if you read um, like maybe a, a, a blog review or something, and it's not so much to see uh, if they like it or not. I, and this was the case even when it was the sort of proper professional critics reviews down the years. If I felt they were engaging with a book, that would make me happy. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd sometimes get more from a review that was that was critical than uh, one that was like praising the book to the skies. If I felt like sometimes you knew that they would decide that they were going to like it in advance, or and sometimes you knew they'd decide they don't like you, so they're going to do a hatchet job in advance. But if, if I felt that they were engaged with the issues, that's mostly what you want. You want to know that there was something worth engaging with. That, that review you mentioned there, you know, that was, was outraged, it's, it's a crime book, you know, based in Edinburgh quite early one morning. I don't know what, what they're expecting when they open up and read the pages, you know. It was, well, at that time, things have changed, so much has changed in the whole... That, that was back in 96, Christopher, wasn't it? 1996? Yeah, I mean, the, the industry is unrecognisable, but at that time, um, if you were Scottish, you were needing to brace yourself for a kicking from Scottish critics. There was an element of the... Kent is fairer thing, you know, that sort of they want to kind of knock you down. Um, and it was weird because my publisher, I remember a, a few books in, there was this, one of the publicists saying, What is it with Scottish critics? They, they, they always slaughter the Scottish writers. And weirdly, I would get great reviews in the Irish press, but the opposite was true there. Irish writers would say the Irish press absolutely hammered them, but would be really uh, generous 
to writers from other parts of, of, of the country or, or from Britain. And it was, you know, it was a weird thing. There was, over in Australia, they were saying the same thing. They call it tall poppy syndrome. You know, it's like you stick your head up, we're going to cut it off. So there was there was a wee bit of pettiness, I think, at times um, back then. There was the kind of who does who does this even think he is? You know, which I think that that was a factor. I would I would have been less confident in saying that was the case if it wasn't that this reciprocal was true in Ireland. You know that yeah. um, the it was almost like if you're if you're the local boy made good, we don't like that. If you've got a bit of the exotic about you, you know you're, right. you're from something else that's okay. <laughs> It's a shame that, isn't it? And I, I'm not surprised because I do feel that, and that, that's why I'm almost so surprised that the, the community that you've got in Scottish crime writing, because I do feel that in Scotland often, if someone's doing well, the automatic reaction is to shoot them down. Whereas if you look across the pond to America, you know, it's like people are super confident and, you know, if someone's doing well, they're, they're all behind them. You know, it's let's let's get behind this person here. Uh, I think maybe that's another reason that in, in crime fiction, we are all very supportive because we all know what we're up against you know we, we know the experience of what it is to put you know your heart and soul into a book because it takes sometimes a year to write you know or more and then it's out there and somebody can be really needlessly cruel about it and i, I think i remember hearing many years ago um on it was mark Kermode on radio one was like he was interviewing uh neil jordan the film director um, and he was on while they were doing the reviews, and there was some really dreadful, uh, you know, absolute by the numbers Hollywood pulpy comedy that w- was Mark Kim was getting ripped into. And, and Neil Jordan had always been asked to be guest reviewer, and they were trying to tee him up to really rip into it. And he was saying, ever since he'd made, I think it was The Company of Wolves in the early 80s, he said, when he realized how much it took to for so many people to get this on the screen. And he said, it's, it's true of every film. You, you find it very hard after that to be cruel about somebody else's work. And I think that's the case. It's the, the, the critics who can be very cruel about somebody else's work in, in literature, I think that they fall into the camp of either they've never done it, so they don't know, or they've done it and failed. <laughs> they want to make themselves feel better. Yeah. But I think those, those, of you, those who are writers will... They'll find it very difficult to be really cruel about somebody else's work because they know what it takes to do it. You know, they, they know um, how much it, um, of an achievement it is to have written a, a novel. So I, I think we are, as a community, we're mutually supportive just simply because we've got a lot of commonality of experience. I spoke to uh, Graham Armstrong on the podcast a while back. He's a, a young Scottish writer from Airdrie who's just brought out his first novel. And it's, it's nice that you mentioned that because he says, you know, before he got his book published, he must have sent it out to 250 publishers mm. and, and get rejections or heard absolutely nothing back. And I think you're now totally at the opposite scale, whereas, you know, you're 25, 24 years down the line from first being published. And, you know, you must have people almost shouting out, you know, give us more content. But what was it like back in the early days? Did you, you came from journalism, but did you, did you find it hard to get your first book published? Or was, was it slightly um, more challenging then or easier then? Or how does it compare to nowadays? I don't know how it would compare it nowadays because the landscape is so different. Um, certainly one of the things that I, even before that, I, I think I was kind of struggling against was when I was young, I thought writers existed on another plane. You know, there was like occasionally you'd hear about somebody had uh, had seen a writer, you know, that you'd heard of. But the notion that you could just get on social media and instantly have 
uh, interactions with with writers or go to bookshops and hear them talk about the work. Get you know, it's hard to find an unsigned copy, you know, of my work never made a signed copy. Um, so I, I was kind of thinking it was the, the idea of breaking into it seemed nigh impossible. So it was always going to be a a big task. Um, but I actually, I wrote four books before I got one published. So quite early one morning was my fourth novel. So it was a question of just persevering. And also of knowing that I was learning as I went. You know, that I wasn't thinking it was some great injustice that the early stuff wasn't published. I was thinking, of course it's not being published. I'm not good enough yet. You know, I, I'm I'm learning every day that I'm doing this. But I felt once I got published that that was, it wasn't like that was me arrived. I felt like I, it's like I got the apprenticeship, you know, <laughs> and so I was, I was still an apprentice for a long time. And I, as a writer, you're perceived to be a young writer if you're 40, you know. So um, I was first published when I was 26. So it's, it's a long time before um, of, I never, I mean, it's taken years and years for me to feel like I'm uh, legitimate. You know, for years I would expect the tap on the shoulder and somebody saying, oh, there's been a, a clerical error and you were never supposed to be doing that. So that kind of imposter syndrome. Um, plagued me for a long time and it's been interesting watching my wife go through the same thing she's um still got a huge dose of imposter syndrome because she's come from a completely different background she's only a few books into this uh, and she's learning all the time and so she again keeps feeling like she's got no right to be there you know and it's but i do think that comes from backgrounds as well it's part of our problem in our society actually is that those people who are trying their hardest to learn on the job, to anticipate their mistakes, um, are feeling like imposters and yet unqualified mediocrities who went to the right school, you know, are blustering into the big positions, positions they've got absolutely no right to be occupied. You know, so I, I think we have a joke in our house, it's like we're, we're sort of crippled constantly by self-doubt. Um, my wife keeps saying that the opposite of that is Kanye, <laughs> Kanye West. Yeah, yeah. But, we keep talking about having the essence of Kanye. <laughs> just like you don't want to be like Kanye, but you just want a tiny wee bit of what Kanye's got, so that you're it would as if it would it would be absorbed into the bloodstream and, and counteract the constant self doubt. Uh, you know, it's it's great that you mentioned your your wife there and writing alongside her. That must be a, a really interesting challenge because you know you you've done it for so many years on your own, and then your wife came from a medical background, I believe, as well. And taking that leap, it must be a challenge both for you and and for her. Um, yeah, I mean, it's got its challenges, but it's got its benefits. Um, obviously, one of the main benefits for me is now I'm alternating the Ambrose Parry books on my own. So it means that every every second book, I don't have to come up with a story. Yeah, you know, and that's you know that's a big deal. We like coming up with a whole world and a whole story and creating new characters or whatever. So, but yeah, the, the challenge obviously was. Something I'd never really dealt with before was take was historical fiction for one thing, but also taking real characters and real events and trying to weave a story around that. Uh, and I don't think that's something I could have done, even if I'd, my wife had sort of presented me with a lot of research and said, "Here's what I think you could write about." I realised that was never going to work. She has this perspective on medical history and of on medicine itself that she sees where drama and conflict lies that, that I would never spot. And um, so she knows where the story really uh, in, is inhabited in, in uh, the, this period in medicine. So sh she would focus on where where the conflicts are, what the plot should be, and I would help shape that from 
obviously I'm, I'm more experienced as a storyteller, but she's got very good editorial instincts. She always did. That's why she would, you know, she'd read my work and um, help me with that as well. So it's, but it's, it's, it's never the same twice. You know, each book we write, the, the process is changing, the relationship um, we have with the, with the book changes. So the one we've just finished, um, it was fairly intense. We've, we've, we seem to have written it quite quickly, even though, well, the actual writing part seemed to be quite quick, but the, the pr- time preparing was, was huge. And the process was, was altered and I think it was quite efficient. I, I like to go walking and I'll dictate ideas to myself uh, or, and I'll dictate dialogue and things like that. But it can be quite woolly and then I'll go back and transcribe it. And as I transcribe it, I'm augmenting it and then I'll, I'll work it into proper prose and dialogue. Whereas what we did a lot of the time in the last book is I would go those walks, come up with this very sketchy stuff, give that to her, and then I'd go and start sketching again for the next bit. So while I'm doing that, she's turning it into um, the, 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 the prose, the dialogue, the chapters. But again, some of that I'm, I'm feeding off of what she suggested in the first place. And so it's been probably with each book, the, the process is altered. And I was just saying there about how there was a lot of prep work. I mean, she spent, while I was writing my last book, she was uh, researching, building up the storyline and the themes and the ideas for, for the new Ambrose Parry. But we were coming up with an analogy. And um, when you're thinking about writing a book, you're thinking about the actual writing pages, word, words on a page. It's like decorating. You know, it's when you're going to paint your, your living room in the end, you find that the time spent painting was quite small. So much of it was the masking, no, putting masking tape, you know, uh, preparing surfaces, clearing stuff out, etc. Doing the wee fiddly bits, and then the actual laying on of the emulsion. Is um, in your mind, that's the main part of the job. But actually, that's a, that's it. May even take as much time as everything else, but it's, it's the the prep work. Uh, has to be that always takes longer than you imagined it was going to take, but you can't start without it. Um, otherwise, you'll get yourself in a hell of a mess. That's really interesting. How, how does it affect your your personal relationship? Because obviously, I'd imagine usually you keep your professional and your personal relationship separate. But <laughs> in this in this aspect, you know, you're you're in the same house every day. You you, you live with yeah. your wife. You know. Yeah. Well, it, it, for one thing, you know, everybody was going to be stuck in the house with us. Their spouse a lot longer than they were used to. Um, we were actually so well prepared for it because we've been doing that for a few years. Um, I've got to say, one of the things that made lockdown easier for us was that we always had something to talk about. You know, um, apart from the virus, obviously, you know, we had something to talk about. We were always discussing ideas of where we're where we're taking the characters or, or what's going to happen next. I mean, it's, it's certainly it's not something I would recommend for as a sort of couples <laughs> therapy for, for anybody to try and write something together. I think you have to have a very strong relationship first before you can embark on something like that. And I think you have to have a lot of respect for what each other brings to it and also what each other doesn't so that we, we both know where our limitations are. It's things that I'm just no nots to question <laughs> because <laughs> Marissa knows all about the, the medical and historical side of it. Um, and... <laughs> occasionally I'll take a flyer on something and she'll come in and she'll, look with a, she'll say I've just read this thing you've you've sent me did you research that? and I'm like no did you just make it up? yes <laughs> she'll come back and say this has to go because that's not true that didn't happen you know? 
And if, yeah, but can we use it somehow? And she'll find, you know, the, the parts of it that we can we can put in the story, or she'll amend it so that it's actually historically accurate. It's brilliant. You know, it, it sounds really exciting and really fun as well. But I'd imagine, you know, you can be more honest with your wife than you could be, you know, a friend or a fellow writer. You know, if, if you think something's rubbish, you're more likely, not that it would be, but if you think something's not as good or you think something could be improved, you're more likely to say it to your wife than you are to, you know, if you were doing it with yeah. someone like the band, you know. I think we are, yeah, we're, we're quite, obviously we're quite gentle with each other, but uh, in terms of if, if there's something that isn't um, working, but we generally talk stuff over in advance so that we'll we'll know what's likely to work before we try and put it down on the page. Uh, but, you know, th- there can be some tension as well, obviously, <laughs> which usually comes from the fact that I, I do a lot of my work in my head and Marissa likes everything written down. So she'll feel like I'm sort of racing ahead or trying to compose the, a storyline or a plot line that she's not part of because it's all still up here. Um, and then... I'll sometimes say, well, I can't explain it all because I don't know it all yet. You know, it, it, I'm I'm a bit more comfortable with um, waiting to see where the, the story takes me or, or, or being patient to know that if I wait long enough or spend enough time with characters, um, certain things will reveal themselves. Uh, Marissa, she's learning that that does work, but for the first couple of books, she, she didn't have a lot of faith that that would work. She'd think... If I can't see how we're getting logically, you know, from here to here, I don't know. I'm not getting there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and she wouldn't believe that. She's, she's seen it now through practice that, you know, sometimes the story's better. And if you don't know where it's going until you get there yourself. When when can we expect the, the next Ambrose party book? Then when should it be, be hitting the shelves? Or is it still to go to the publishers and get a bit of a touch up? Or? Uh, yeah. Yeah, we only only actually sent it to the publishers um, about a week and a half ago, or not even that. Um, so it's it will be published in August um, next year. Uh, I've got another book coming out in the meantime. <laughs> I've got a book coming out in, I think it's March it's scheduled for, uh, which I finished um, early in lockdown. Uh, and I had to make some amendments even as I was writing it. Uh, towards the end because the last quarter of the book takes place in Italy in uh, well it was taking place in Italy in autumn no uh, spring of um, early part of the, the year 2020 and I had to rewrite it and move it to the back to the autumn so there was pre-virus because Italy was you know just absolutely swamped at that point but yeah it's that's um that's called the cut which will be out in March how do you how do you go about picking your your destinations and, and your characters? Because Italy seems like a, a new one for you. Am I wrong? Uh, well, it, it was all about the subject matter in this case. Um, it's about a a woman who she's a, a sort of suicidal ex con who uh, spent twenty five years in, in jail and um, she's seventy two and kind of hasn't adjusted to life back on the outside. And she's planning to to kill herself, but um, she ends up going on the on the road and on the run with her eighteen year old flatmate, uh, and together there, and she kind of re rediscovers her lust for life through um, investigating the the events surrounding the murder that she was jailed for. But because she worked in the film film business, she was a makeup artist in horror movies in the eighties and early nineties. 
So it's all about the kind of exploitation cinema of the 80s and early 90s. And um, I used to work for Screen International, so we used to go to the Cannes Film Festival and uh, Milan for the, the Mifed film market. So it's all about that kind of sleazy, uh, exploitative end of the industry. So, um, and, and there's a great uh, tradition of Italian horror cinema, um, dating back to the 60s from the what were known as Jally, the, these or Jallo, a Jallo movie or a Jally movie, um, which then kind of gave rise to things like um, the, the, uh, Dario Argento and, and the kind of great Italian horror directors. So it sort of dips into that. So there's it, it's got a split timeline where it's showing you the events surrounding the, the shooting of a film in the uh, early 90s that she was the makeup artist on. So she's revisiting re- some of the locations uh, in in Europe um, whilst on the run from the bad guys, uh, and yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. It's, one of the, it's probably a return to the kind of books that I wrote uh, a while ago. It's that kind of grand escapist adventure, whilst probably get the kind of emotional complexity of, the, of my more recent work. Um, but it was it was great fun because it's about sleazy stuff That's and horror movies. It's about but a horror movie that was that went missing. It's a legendary horror film that was never released, and it was rumored to have been the negative was rumored to have been burned by its producers because it was so horrific and so disturbing. But there's a there's a darker story behind why the film went missing. I'm looking forward to it already. That sounds brilliant. I, I, I touched on your characters there just just for you know one reason. It's obviously you, you've had reoccurring characters throughout your books. Back in '96, your first one that we spoke about already. You know Jack Parlabane was. Uh, the, the main man in there, investigative journalist, and then, you know, back in 2017, you're, you're, you're still writing about him. He's been in maybe, what, eight or nine books since then. It's like, how do you decide when to, when to bring them back out or, or leave them to the side? Um, it's usually just the story uh, decides for me. I, I very seldom decide I'm going to write a Jack Parlamane book. You know, an idea for a book will come along and then I'll realise, I actually know he would fit in there. Um, in fact, when I came up with Black Widow, he wasn't meant to be in it. It was. It was. I came up with it as a, a story initially for, um, Jasmine Sharp. I just finished the Jasmine Sharp trilogy, and I thought it would work for her. And then uh, I realised that, you know, he's. It's about a marriage that breaks up. His marriage has just broken up. Uh, I don't know why it wasn't staring me in the face. I suddenly realised he is the person to write that to to put into this story. So sometimes. There's a role in a, in a book. You think actually, I don't need to create a new character if there's somebody that I've already got who can play that that function. So yeah, he does have a, a, a wee cameo role in in a more recent novel as well. But I, I don't like being too specific about it because it spoils a surprise. Brilliant. See, when you're when you're writing, Christopher, do you do you think like obviously, I feel that when people put art, art out there or when they put something creative out there, they're often thinking about their audience. But I could be wrong here. But I feel that crime writing, you know. I, you wrote your first book when you're mid to late twenties, you know, and you're still writing just now. I feel that I could pick up a book, and someone in their, their late sixties or seventies could pick up a book, and you could enjoy it just the same. Is there a target audience, or you just think you know this is for everyone? No, I, I think you're first of all you're writing for your own amusement. You know, I I, I think what would be a mistake was trying to write for um, a younger audience when you're my age. You know, I I think that's that's tricky. You know, you can't try and be hip <laughs> uh, and and so you just have to write I mean I've always got the audience in mind in that I'm imagining 
you know, I want I want to fool them a lot of the time, or I want to misdirect them, um, or I want to manipulate them emotionally. So I'm always thinking about what the reader is, is going to make of of um, the book, or also at any given time, how much information have they got? What am I wanting them to think at this point? But I'm not thinking about a a specific demographic or anything like that. I, I'm just concentrating entirely on telling the story in a way that that I imagine would work for a reader. I mean, it's it's tricky as well that sometimes the last couple of solo novels I've written, I have had young characters in them. Um, there was Amanda in Fallen Angel, and there's a character um, called Jerry in the new book, The Cut, and he's 18, just started at uh, Glasgow Uni. Um, and so I'm, I'm conscious of, you don't want to get this stuff glaringly wrong, so I would... Um, uh, basically just ask my son to look it over and make sure I've not said something that just makes me sound like the age I am. You know? um, also, I made the character a metalhead because my son has just got an encyclopedic knowledge of metal and it just gave an area that I knew he could keep me straight on. Mm-hmm. You know, wouldn't, wouldn't he make him a, a fan of, of you know, grime or something that, that nobody, could tell me, nobody in the house could tell me about? I love that father-son relationship there because, believe it or not, that's, that's the reason why I actually get into your books, being a a mother old fan for my sins. My, <laughs> the first time I can remember seeing, seeing one of your books, my dad, uh, before he passed away, he was a huge fan of your work. And, and the first one that he had, or the first one that I remember seeing was A Big Bald Boy Did It and Ran Away. And the cover of it is, it's not Claret and Amber, it's almost like Orange and Brown. But I remember seeing it as a young like, <laughs> maybe 10, 15 years ago, and saying to my dad, what's that book you're reading? That looks like mother old colours. And then I never really thought anything of it. And then only recently, you know, I, I've went back and started reading your stuff and thought, God, my dad was actually into some really good stuff here. I, I find myself slowly turning into him. You know, I'm reading the same books that he read years ago and, and listening to the music that he's reading, uh, that he used to listen to. So hearing yeah. that you're taking advice for your son is, is quite an interest. It's like roles reversal. <laughs> yeah, I, you, well, there's a point where you realise that you can't fight it, you know, that they know more than you and you should just roll with that. You know, I, I think if I think if my teenage self seen seen me doing this, I'd be totally ashamed. But I think that the older you get, you realise I never wasn't wrong in, in such things. <laughs> the weird stuff as well is I find myself um, I've ended up going to so many gigs with my son because, and it, it was mostly metal stuff which I'm not particularly into. But um, as a as a father, I'm just feeling like while your your offspring are not so ashamed of you that you're you're not allowed to be in their orbit. I'm going to take that as long as I can, you know. Um, just now. <laughs> yeah, so go as many gigs as I can, even if it's not necessarily my taste. But that's been great too, because it's kind of, I've experienced music in a, in a musical subculture that I would never have experienced otherwise. So I, I, I drew on that quite a bit in, in the new book in a, a kind of fun way too, because there's there's a lot of humour to it. I mean, the thing about metal is it's, it seldom takes itself that seriously. Or when it does, it's even funnier, you know. <laughs> Role reversal, I'm telling you, give it 10, 15 years and, and, and he'll be going to your gigs, I'm telling you. That's, that's how it comes out. <laughs> well, he's been to a few. <laughs> Didn't he enjoy it as much? No, he, he, yeah, he's quite... Actually, we, my wife and I had a joint 50th birthday party and um, as an encore for the band, we'd rehearsed uh, Breaking the Law uh, oh, by good. Judas Priest for him to come up and sing and he did distinguish himself full metal growls and everything. So <laughs> That's amazing. That's brilliant. And does he, does he still go to the football if he's a still a St. Murray fan as well? I know my son's never had any interest in no, football. Never? No, no. Never. He's got no interest in any sport at all. 
He's been know. to two football matches um, and when he was wee, just for, usually for on occasions when my wife was at work on a Saturday and I had, and you know, he's just not remotely interested in sport. I don't know if I, if I was a St. Nunn fan, if, if my dad was a St. Nunn fan, I'd maybe be the same, Christopher, but I suppose I can't even <laughs> support my mother, so it's... Uh, what, what else is in the pipeline then? You've got your, your next book coming out in, in March and the Ambrose Parry one in, in the fire as well. So what, what are you doing with yourself at the moment? Uh, yeah, trying, trying to remind myself how to put my feet up. Uh, um, well, it's now's the chance to finally read some other people's stuff. So um, you, I, I find it hard to read fiction when I'm writing it. So I'm just, um, even that, it's quite hard to uh, slow down and start getting through other people's work. I found this every time I finished a book. It takes me a week or so before I can just sit in the settee and flip through a book. So, you know, I'll end up, I don't know, doing a lot of guitar practice and, and um, watching some TV and going a lot of walks, playing tennis, things like that. But um, uh, it's, it's, it's a weird readjustment to having time on your hands because writing a book is... It takes it always takes so much longer than you ever think, no matter how many times you, you've done it. But also, it takes up so much of your life. Um, Mark Billingham he uh, summed it up perfectly when he said, "The thing about writing a book is that you're never not writing it. You know, it, it's always in your head until it's done. You know, you're in the shower, you're thinking about it. You're peeling potatoes, you're thinking about it. It's always in your head." And once you've finally been able to disengage from it, it takes a wee while to re-engage with anything else. So I'm, I'm in that phase at the moment. So I'm, I'm yeah, I'm, I'm, the main thing I've, I've really absorbed myself with uh, the last couple of weeks is I've been binge watching Cobra Kai on Netflix, <laughs> which which is just so much better than it's got any right to be. It's, it's tremendous. And it, you know, I'm an eighties kid, I grew up on you know the Karate Kid, so. You deserve it, I think. You know, it's as you say, it must be really hard to switch off. And, and when you finally get one, when another one down on paper or on the laptop or however you write, you know, it must be a real sense of achievement as well. Yeah, well, there's mostly a sense of relief. You think there's going to be a sense of uh, achievement and euphoria at the end, um, and there never is. There's always just this sort of sense of relief that it's done. Um, and then you like to have the luxury of not thinking about it for a few while. Well, Chris, thanks very much for your time. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Looking forward to the, the new novels that are coming out, both your own and, and the Ambrose Parry with your wife as well. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Cheers. Mm-hmm.